Hello and welcome to the Goal 4 podcast, a show all about education and inclusion. I'm Richard Ingram. The education system is, well, it's just that. It's a system. It's messy, it's complicated, it has many different moving parts and is pulled this way and that by vested interests, politics, research, international declarations. It blows with the proverbial wind. An education system, as we know, comprises teachers, parents and students. But it also involves the actions of policymakers, access to transport networks, the support or lack of support from finance ministries and communities, and the availability of new and exciting technology. Zoom out further, and all of these things are impacted by a nation's economy, its laws, or its levels of democratic freedom. Or more often than not, all three of these things and more. Those trying to make education more inclusive must navigate this system and adapt and respond to uncountable and unpredictable external forces. How a system is constructed and who holds the power within it is crucial knowledge in any such endeavour. One man that knows all about the quest for such knowledge is Dr Duncan Green, Senior Strategic Advisor at Oxfam, Professor in Practice in International Development at the London School of Economics. Duncan has written a brilliant book that I've just read and very much enjoyed called How Change Happens. It's one of those books that really everyone working in international development should read. In addition to this and several other noteworthy publications, Duncan's blog, From Poverty to Power, is read by many people all over the world. Links to the book and the blog can be found in the show notes. I highly recommend them both. I first heard Duncan talk about power and systems on a UN system staff college course and I just knew I had to get him on the podcast. Duncan Green, welcome to Goal 4. Great to be here. Well, thank you for joining. Um, Now, I have your book in front of me, How Change Happens. It offers a clear insight into what actually works and what doesn't work in the world of international development and advocacy. You begin the book by talking about a power and systems approach. I wanted to break this down and then get back to it. So firstly, what is a systems approach? I guess I find the best way to think about systems is through analogy, right? I mean, that um, systems approach is saying we live in these complex arrays of players who are all interacting with lots of feedback loops. And um, that is a description of real life. So if you think of any economy, uh, of any political system, any social system, but actually of our own lives. So, you know, if you imagine when you have a child, um, Suppose you actually treated your child as an aid project and, and came up with an 18-year log frame, which set out in advance all the activities and intended outcomes from your parenting. I think there's a fair bet that that child would end up really messed up. <laughs> but what you do when you're actually a parent is you learn by doing, you learn by failing, you learn from others, you learn from the child. There's a constant process of feedback and learning and adapting and changing direction, um, which it hopefully will produce a good result, as in a, 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 more, a, a sort of well-rounded human being at the end of it. Or if you're if having children is not your game, imagine that I get on my bicycle uh, uh, and want to ride across London. And again, I set out in advance my direction and velocity at all moments during that ride in a, you know, in a nice log frame. I would die before I got out of Brixton. So <laughs> the only way to manage that process is to have constant feedback. There is a truck coming towards me. Some idiots just walked out in front of the bike and react and change direction. Now, 
that's so obvious in our lives. Uh, you know, see those two two examples, and yet in the aid business uh, and and in a lot of activism generally, people actually are looking for a sort of linear cause and effect planability that actually means that you often miss opportunities and end up failing. Why is that, do you think? Is this to do with what the donor wants to see at the end of the project? Very good question. I think there's different reasons for it. One is, I think, historical, that a lot of the aid business came out of infrastructure projects, which are a bit linear. Although engineers say, no, no, it's not. But I mean, yeah, if you want to build a bridge or you want to build a road, it's complicated but it's not complex. It's not, it's not unpredictable, um, usually, unless it's the Wobbly Bridge in London or whatever it is. But um, so that, I think that big infrastructure project created this way of thinking about aid in terms of projects. And it's quite interesting. I, I, I say to my students, you know, imagine there's no projects. Imagine projects were banned and you weren't allowed to do projects. How would you do aid? What would aid consist of? And it's actually quite an interesting thought experiment because a lot of people just go, yeah, their brains explode. It's like, how? You know? <laughs> so, it's, so it's that. But it's also, as you say, uh, it's the way we raise money. Now, there's no reason why that should be the way we raise money. You know, there's other ways of giving money. Scholarships are a different way of giving money to the project, you know. Um, core funding, you know, um, cash transfers there's lots of different things which are not strictly that project in that sense of you know uh predicating the the, the activities uh, that are required to achieve a certain outcome so i think there are the institutional sort of um, mechanisms that have grown up in the aid sector and with that all the monitoring evaluation being able to show to donors that you're not you know uh, frittering away the money that you're using it well that somebody isn't just sort of making it up as they go along there's lots of press compliance you know increasingly showing that the money hasn't been diverted to dark and devious causes you know, there's lots of pressures which push you in this direction of linearity let's put it that as a general term uh, i just don't think it works very well in many situations it works in some you know if you're going to vaccinate some kids, vaccinate twice as many kids, you'll probably get twice as many results. You know, but but there's lots of other situations in which that linear approach just really doesn't work. Things like women's empowerment, governance, um, uh, you know, ecological uh, you know, strengthening, system strengthening in, in uh, various different systems. So the book is arguing that we need to have this other way of thinking about these more complex environments. To give an example, the education system is messy and people have to acknowledge that yes but caution here that people system is one of those words that's used in <laughs> ways the two principal ways are system as in a bureaucratic system a system of offices and, and roles and that's not always the same as a complex system which is a system with massive feedback loops like a um uh, the human body or uh, an ecosystem so it gets very difficult because people you know use the same word to describe two things which are actually not entirely the same but there's a quite a lot of overlap certainly in terms of the education system we've touched on it slightly we've we've mentioned some people that might have power within a system such as donors tell me about power why is it important to consider who has power i think the best way to think about power is if you've seen the film, if you haven't seen the film, this is going to be a completely useless analogy. I speak in metaphors and analogies increasingly. Um, but uh, The Matrix, great noughties film. I think it was noughties. Uh, First one was good. 
The first one was good. The rest were absolutely fine. <laughs> um, but the first one, uh, they had this thinly disguised Messiah figure who was Keanu Reeves at, the, at his most beautiful. And, um, and he was Neo, uh, which is an anagram of one. Isn't that funny? <laughs> um, and uh, he could, came to see the matrix and the matrix is a system of ones and zeros which in the film is the kind of underlying reality they're basically saying that this is a digital world which we think is real um and when he comes to be able to see the matrix he suddenly becomes invincible and i think of power as a bit like the matrix of social change so a lot of change processes um whether they're inside institutions in society in economies are about the dispute of power, the renegotiation of power, the redistribution of power. Now, that is a very hand-wavy kind of comment. I'm waving my hands now for those who are listening on a podcast. Um, But there are lots of really useful ways to make power visible in a more more precise way. So, you know, to actually think, well, who makes these decisions? Who has power over the people who make the decisions? What are the ideas in their heads that are shaping their decisions? Who has the power to shape those ideas? And then how does all that play out in society? How does society view this particular issue? Is it a question of normative change rather than changing the law or changing the policy? If it's changing norms, you you do different things to if you're trying to get a government to change its policy or laws. So I think a power analysis, which is this kind of generic term for thinking about all these different ways of thinking about power. And there's a huge number of frameworks. You can get lost in the frameworks, but basically you can go all the way from, I think the simplest I've read is Robert Chambers, who says in any interaction, there's an upper and a lower, and you need to think who, whether which are you. And if you're not in, in that interaction, who is who? Because that will shape what is said, what is not said, you know, how what, what will result, all the way up to Foucault, who I find completely unintelligible. Mm-hmm. Uh, French philosopher, mm-hmm. uh, biopower. You know, whenever we get to Foucault, luckily I have someone else who teaches my course with me. I just go ask Tom because I have no idea what he's on about. <laughs> and there's lots of things in between. So that yeah, you pick your level of, of, of difficulty, your level of abstractness, and you find some useful frameworks that help you make power visible. And I think you become a more considered, intentional uh, uh, seeker of change. So I'm already starting to see how that slots into the systems thinking. So, I mean, the power and systems approach combines those two aspects. Exactly. Power flows through systems and it's at the heart of those feedback loops that are the you know, big part of. So a feedback loop in which your old university professor comes to see you. I've seen this in the Philippines. Your old university professor is now working for an NGO, comes to see the minister and the minister suddenly feels absolutely intimidated and says, Madam, what can I do? Yeah, that's power operating through a feedback loop in an intentional way, which is getting a minister to do what you want them to do. Yeah, very smart pe- hire from the NGO in question. Um, so you can see power operating in all sorts of com- yeah, overlapping ways every time you look at a change process. And I'm sure people can relate to that just in their their own social lives and their work lives. It's yeah. it's it's obvious when you see it. I suppose it's one of those things. Who do you listen to? Who listens to you? You know, what sort of evidence persuades? Um, is it a question of numbers? Is it a question of relationships? You know, all these things are part of a, a good power analysis. I mean, going back to your book, I loved a phrase that you used. Now, you started your career as 
an undergraduate in physics. Correct. And this led you to search for, and I'm quoting from the book now, a unified theory of activism, which I thought was brilliant. What, <laughs> what prompted the move from physics to international development? What's the link there? Okay, I, um, that's a ridiculously pompous, um, uh, <laughs> but never mind, because the person who was looking for a unified field theory in, uh, in physics was Einstein, so I really shouldn't have said that. You know, um, definitely not good. Um, I did physics at undergrad. Uh, I kind of enjoyed it, but it was, it was uh, at that point, you didn't have to pay vast amounts to study at university. So you just went to do stuff at university just to avoid getting a job. And um, I happened to be good at physics. So my teachers at school pushed me to do physics. And when I got there, it was kind of like, it was like being very good at crosswords or something. It was, it was just something that I liked doing, but it never occurred to me uh, to do a job in it. And, and in any case, the only jobs around at that time were in various defense pro programs like Star Wars, um, which no one will remember. Um, it was a kind of crazy Ronald Reagan um, uh, idea. So I just then sort of set off for Latin America as people do, uh, still do, I think, after university, backpacked my way around the place, ended up living under military rule in Argentina and discovered politics in a fairly visceral way. Um, so, uh, yeah, and then the only time I've used physics was for, for a year when I kept London nuclear free for the Greater London Council under Ken Livingston. Um, uh, and I wouldn't say I used it that much then either. <laughs> I mean, the trip around South America seems uh, a very good idea at the minute, sitting here in in, uh, in February in the UK. I wanted to go on as well. You you write passionately about something called uh, positive deviance. Can you explain what this is and why it can be so useful to consider? I think this is probably one of the most interesting neglected topics that I've come across uh, on, on in social change. So the idea is very simple. Um, that on any issue, educational out, out, you know, results, uh, uh, malnutrition, um, governance, accountability, in a, in, a, in a system, you will have a range of uh, results. There'll be an average, um, which will usually be a bump in the middle. And then you'll have some particularly bad ones and some better ones. So you basically get a sort of Gaussian distribution, normal distribution with a lump in the middle and two, two um, uh, tails. Positive deviance says, um, okay, so what that is telling you is that the system is finding its own answers to this problem. Kids are less malnourished. Schools are getting better results. Kids are showing up, whatever it is. And instead of coming in with our project from the outside, our first step should be to identify those positive outliers. Okay. And then uh, what we'll do is uh, we'll identify those positive outliers. And then instead of turning them into a project, We'll then just bring the people we're trying to influence, who are also teachers, parents, whatever they are, to see the positive outliers and see if they want to replicate it. Uh, and an educational example was from Argentina, where they, there was a really big problem of uh, school dropouts in dropout rates in one of the interior provinces, and they couldn't solve it. So they sent for the positive deviance people, and the positive deviance people came in and they said the first meeting, the teachers all had their arms crossed which is a classic body language thing of saying, I hate you. I'm not listening. I, you, you're just coming here to wag your finger at me. You know, uh, I'm just going to sit through this and then I'm going to go back to my job. And they started talking to them and said, okay, so, you know, do you have a problem uh, with school dropouts? And they went, yes, that's why we're here. And then they said, do you all have 
the same level of school dropouts. And they said then the arms started to uncross uh, and people started to say, well, I'm not sure. Let's, let's, what's your rate? What's your rate? And they started yeah, identifying that some schools had better uh, or yeah, lower dropout rates than others. And then they said, OK, well, look, you know, you're the experts, you're the teachers. So why don't you go and look at the schools with the lowest dropout rates and see if they're doing anything differently? And what they found was that the teachers in those some of those schools had just spontaneously come up with the idea of contracts with parents where they would do written contracts with parents to keep their kids in school in return for getting their kids taught. And it was the kind of thing that everybody said, well, yeah, we can do that. And it had a real impact. Doesn't require money. Doesn't require white savior coming in to solve things. It's, it's respectful of you know, indigenous innovation and, 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 and finds it and develops it. And the similar one in a slightly more sort of um, orchestrated one I saw in, uh, in Kenya, They'd got a big database of primary schools and then identified the primary schools that were outperforming uh, compa compared to the poverty levels in their catchment areas and then went and interviewed them. And they just went to, they discounted a couple that were just, you know, unreproducible. But you're looking for things that could be reproduced easily elsewhere in the system. It's just a really nice way to, uh, to think differently rather than turning everything into a project. It's an amazing way of the system, as you say, the system fixing itself yeah. and evolving and adapting. And that evolution is out there. It's happening. People are people are finding ways around really specific problems that an external um, aid worker coming in will probably not be able to spot, right? So it also um, values the knowledge of the actors on the ground yeah. rather than the big expert coming out. So all you really need is a facilitator. And that can be from... So I'm just doing some work in Papua New Guinea on this at the moment. And we would be much happier if we can find a, a PNG facilitator rather than bringing someone from outside, maybe in, in combination, because they'll, they'll, you know, they'll just know what, how things work. So you need a good facilitator, preferably from the country. If you've got a database, great. If not, you'll have to do it more sort of, you know, so, um, sort of uh, empirically or subjectively or whatever. And then you just see what you find. And, uh, you know, who knows what you're going to unearth? It's a so moment you, of brilliance. You only need one, I suppose. Well, it's better if there's more than one. But yeah. <laughs> the interesting question is, why hasn't it caught on, right? So I yeah. think yeah, I, I, I was always kind of tempted to write a book called How Change Doesn't Happen. Probably wouldn't sell very well. But um, I think the problem with it is that it doesn't, precisely that it doesn't need money. It doesn't lend itself to projects. So the aid sector doesn't know what to do with it. A small group of positive deviants kind of groupies um, who are doing it, but it, it hasn't got any traction over the big organisations because, you know, what's in it for them? How would they manage this thing, you know? Well, change doesn't happen if that doesn't happen. And also change sometimes doesn't happen when there are dangerous societal norms, which is something we see a lot about in the work I'm doing with education. Uh, disabilities, one, for example, people think that children with disability aren't quote unquote, deserving of an education, or perhaps girls shouldn't go to school. You said in the book that shifts in societal norms often underpin change. Can you think of any, any particular examples of this? I think norms is one of the most interesting frontiers, norm change. Um, there's some really interesting books, you know, research about it. Um, people like Kwame Appiah in the Honor Code, Christina Bicieri from UNICEF on norms in the wild. 
and they're they're starting to come up with a bit of a a bit of a sort of analytical approach to norm change. Bacheri is really interesting. She she distinguishes between moral norms and social norms. So moral norms are the are the ones which are so deeply rooted in you as an individual that even if you were alone on a desert island, you would not murder someone. Well, you couldn't if you were alone. <laughs> there were two of you on a desert island. You would not murder the other person unless they were particularly annoying. Um, that's a terrible example. Um, whereas social norms are, I do this because I'm. I think everybody else in the in the uh, in my street or my community is doing it or not doing it. Right? I uh, I don't pay tax because only monks pay tax. Right? Mm. I, Changing social norms is easier because you just have to show convincingly that actually people are doing this or are not doing this. You can you can use social proof. Moral norms is a much deeper question of personal transformation, where you're looking at people's faiths, you know, where people get their, their deeply held beliefs from. Um, so that's useful. Appiah looks at, and you ask for examples, he looks at two really, he's got some wacky examples in his book, The Honor Code. The two that stuck with me was the end of dueling, which is like um, 300 years ago, if one chap insulted another chap in the upper classes of Britain, the, the, the insulted chap would slap him with a glove. It was all very odd. I'm sure it happens in the House of Lords today. Yeah, I'm sure. I demand um, satisfaction. They would then get up the next morning very early with a second, march out to a local piece of grass and try and shoot each other in a very ritualized way. And it, yeah, Completely bizarre, but I mean, imagine doing that with the, in an age of internet trolling. It would be very busy. Um, but uh, <laughs> it ended over about twenty-five years. Uh, uh, this whole dueling thing, when it had been absolutely central. You know, prime ministers died in this kind of stuff, um, and it ended because basically the middle classes started doing it, and it stopped being an upper class thing. So it became rather shameful, a bit, a bit you know, um, not cool anymore. Um, and similarly, uh, in China, um, there was this appalling practice of smashing young girls' feet and binding them. It's just it's got this anodyne name of foot binding, but actually it was mutilation of their feet. Uh, so they could so they couldn't walk, but they had small feet. Right? Again, ended in twenty five. Uh, within a generation, this thing which had been going on for centuries. And Appiah's argument is that that happened because China was in a process of uh, entering the world economy, uh, wanting to be seen as a member of uh, uh, of the uh, you know, society, and it was seen as old-fashioned. And so shame became a real driver of that, okay? On a much more, you know... Um, I think much closer to home, the biggest, one of the biggest norm shifts I've noticed in my local park, and I'm obsessed with this, I have yet to find any research paper. So if there's any norm researchers out there, I would love you to study this. When I moved to London in 1980, you could not walk for dog poo. There were tons and tons of dog poo everywhere. If you had kids, it was just a nightmare. You had to clean their shoes every time they came back from the park. Now everybody has their little green biodegradable bags. That is not a nice thing to do. And somehow the norm has shifted whereby dog owners pick up their dog's poo when before it was just not seen as something you had to do. Now, I would love to know how that norm shifted en masse across most of the Western world um, because I've never seen any research. So there you go. So, so norms do shift all the time. You know, beating children uh, was absolutely ubiquitous when I was a kid. 
much less so now. Uh, yeah, you name it, equal marriage. Yeah. Norms are this extraordinary churning thing. And what's interesting is we're now starting to think about how do you intentionally shift norms rather than just go, ooh, no one picks up their dog poo anymore. You know, so well, it's, it's very encouraging to hear that they do shift. And I suppose this is one of the things we have to remember. We're not people, people view the the present as unchanging as it's always been like that, right? That's it's, a huge mistake. It's really important to consider that, okay, this is what the situation is like now, but it might change in 25 years. Or, you know, just to consider things like, well, we used to have slavery in the UK. Now it's, you know, not a societal norm. And it's encouraging for people working in sectors such as inclusive education to think that, okay, well, it's it's not great news at the moment, but perhaps, you know, someday soon, if we keep working, keep doing what we're doing, change happens. Yeah, I think slavery's an example, but it's a long way, long time ago in some senses. I think mm. it's possibly more in, more uplifting to just either think about it in your own life time or talk to your parents about, you know, how were how was this particular minority treated when you were my age? And you will find just extraordinary changes in terms of racism, in terms of sexism, and you know. So I think just stand back and look, and and just as you know, the numbers on things like poverty and maternal mortality and you know life expectancy have all got spectacularly better around the world in the last eighty years. There's a normative equivalent to that, which is also very very exciting. I think doesn't always go in one direction. There's plenty of backlashes and backsliding, but I'm, I'm, I'm with the, you know, the arc of history bends towards justice community. Yeah, it does seem to, because, I mean, we're bombarded daily with bad news and from all over the place. And it's a kind of daily ritual to look through BBC and, oh, oh my goodness, what's happening? But, but really, if you look deeper and look in that side of, as you said, looking back to the, even the 1960s or the 1930s, look at how discrimination and, and racism has changed in this country at least since since then there's a there's been a huge shift you've no idea the kind of level of racism tolerated when I was a kid was just appalling mm. and also I mean just you know in terms of the more brutal you know sort of facts of life just one thing I, one 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 stat I remember is that in the early 20th century the level of infant mortality in New York was higher than in any country in Africa now you know, so just you just don't forget those things. Don't get complacent, obviously, but don't forget that there are yeah, there's some pretty big changes going on under the behind the headlines. And I suppose, lastly, for for people trying to make those changes happen to change norms, what advice would you give them? Think harder. All right. So so the danger of, of working on normative shifts is 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 that it it lends itself to people just speaking truth to power you know complaining berating and forgetting about power actually weirdly <laughs> you're speaking truth to power but you're not trying to understand the power you're speaking truth to um i think the reason why i like uh, apia bicheri and some and, and especially all the people working on gender rights over the years is that they've actually thought analytically about how you shift norms so if you're going to work on norm shifts great but do your homework. Think about there's some great work by Rowan Kelleher in terms of how do you understand how the how normative shifts interact with things like policy and you know people's lives and so on. Um, the, the, avoid the, the therapeutic end of 
activism where you're saying something just as a kind of cathartic thing um, and actually just try and be a bit more um, Machiavellian cold-blooded mm, be smart be smart yeah well Duncan Green thank you very much for coming on the show it's been a real honour to speak to you I found it cathartic actually <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear it and um, I hope our paths cross again soon thank you very much Richard That was Dr. Duncan Green. My thanks to him for joining me today. And thank you for listening. If you have a minute, check out Duncan's blog, From Poverty to Power. The link is in the show notes. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Golf War. If you did, why not share it with your friends? You can also subscribe and listen to a new episode every Wednesday. I'll see you next week. <laughs>